Marini's Media. Totally football show today, Premier League. It's something unparalleled almost anywhere in the world, much like our COVID-19 contagion stats. So as government lifts restrictions, we ponder Premier League's return. Is it roadworthy? And shouldn't they drive it to a castle to find out first, etc. and so on. Beyond that, there's Bundesliga with another bumper weekend of action and Premier League retro as we reach 99-2000. Michael calls it an incredibly dull season. But you'll decide, listener, is this dull? Is this dull? The It's all coming up in the Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Yes, listener, exciting times as things are preparing to happen again in the world of football. Your Totally Football Show is here as ever to welcome in a brand new week and welcome as well a Matt Davis Adams. Hello. Daniel Story. Hi, James. Hi, Daniel. And Michael Cox. Hi, James. Hello to you all. We've just finished watching, I say we, Daniel, I'll include you in that, the uh, Paderborn Dortmund game over in Jon Bundesliga. Yeah, indeed. Uh, I think a, a weekend most notable for goal celebrations and the importance and the cultural relevance of them, I think. Right. Well, nobody was doing any celebrating in the first half of that match because there were no goals whatsoever. But there were seven in the second half, three of them for Jaden Sancho, who's making his first start since the Bundesliga returned to action. He's now up to 17 goals and 16 assists for the league campaign so far. Remarkable. As you mentioned, though, possibly the most important thing he did beyond putting the ball in the net was then unveiling a T-shirt with justice for George Floyd. And he wasn't the only one this weekend, was he, Daniel? No, Marcus Turam earlier took the knee, uh, an action made famous, I suppose, by Colin Kaepernick in, in the NFL. And, yeah, I think it's really pleasing to see these very young uh, footballers who clearly have a sense of world awareness and a, a, a real duty or a sense of responsibility to try and either force change or certainly raise awareness of of wider cultural issues. Now, uh, Schalke's American midfielder, Weston McKenney, also with his uh, armband saying justice for George Floyd. Marcus Turam, of course, Lillian Turam's son, getting a brace uh, earlier on on Sunday in Mönchengladbach's 4-1 win over Union former darlings of uh, Bundesliga lovers everywhere who are busy drifting down towards the wrong end of the German top division. Well, much more happened, of course, this weekend in Germany, and we'll come on to Bayern's game and the extraordinary first goal from Lewandowski in that one, and one or two other talking points as well later on in the show. Up next, though, how about we get a quick word on the Premier League's plans for its return which is a fortnight on Wednesday, supposedly. Zero positive results, as you've probably heard in the latest round of COVID testing. But how positive is Rory Smith of the New York Times feeling about it all? On Spotify, Smart Speaker and podcast platforms everywhere, this is the Totally Football Show from Muddy Knees Media. Rory, it's been a long time. It has, and it's been quite a long journey as well, hasn't mm. it? It feels like it's taken quite a lot of twists and turns to get to a point where, where the Premier League might just about come back. OK. How confident are you that 
we've reached the end of the journey that we needed to make rather than this just being a kind of an expedient decision by certain authorities? I realise I've totally introduced you to a, a, a metaphor that needs to be stretched slightly there, James. I apologise. Um, I think all being well, it should come back now. There's two, there's two areas, I think, that are probably standing in the way. One is a worsening of the situation uh, in Britain as a whole. And I think that the, the trouble there is that a lot of the scientific advice seems to be at odds with what the government are doing, which I think for all of us, whether we care about football or not, is, is slightly troubling, uh, but could potentially have an impact on football. And the second is the issue of what happens if they need to curtail the season once they have restarted it. That's the thing that's still not settled. I think the neutral venues issue uh, is something that I don't really fully understand. If, I, if I'm completely honest, I don't quite get who's objecting and, and all the games that seem to be um, sensitive seem to involve northern teams and mainly Liverpool, but Merseyside police have said they're perfectly happy to police them. And I don't quite understand the logic of saying that, that Liverpool playing Manchester City in Bolton is safe, but in Manchester is not. I, I don't know whether the police have heard of the of the M62 and the M61. I don't know if they if they are aware of kind of car ownership statistics in this country. Uh, and I dislike the idea that you're preemptively saying that football fans will make errors of judgment when we have all seen pictures from various beaches around the country this weekend. So I think that that is an issue that will get sorted out because the Premier League, I suspect, will will make uh, entreaties to the police that there's not really sufficient benefit to playing at neutral grounds to make it worthwhile. Uh, the issue of what happens if they have to curtail the season in the event, what happens with relegation if they have to curtail the season, rather, is slightly thornier. But I suspect what will carry that through is the fact that 14 of the teams probably don't care. And that's what they need for the majority vote. OK. The Bundesliga isolated all their players for a fortnight, isolated them from their families even for a fortnight before the restart. So concerned were they about making sure they could get 18 teams to uh, those matches when things got back underway. Is that what they're doing in the Premier League? Uh, not that I know of. I suspect there will be discussions over how they quarantine players if they need to uh, in the in the week beforehand. But I do wonder if they'll look at the fact that the Bundesliga has come back and not been quarantining players since that first week and wonder whether it might be a step too far. That certainly was one of the things that was very unpopular with the players when it was presented to them, the idea that they might have to be removed from their families for any length of time. It wouldn't it wouldn't be desperately unusual, I think, for players to be to be quarantined for three or four days. Effectively that that's what they might do for European trips, say they might they might be certain teams might be away from home for three nights. Um but I suspect any longer than that, and it would be something of a roadblock. So it may be they look at what's happened in Germany, and Germany's made a huge difference to the speed of the Premier League's return. It's it's one of the things that's helped that's helped the lead and the, the 20-member clubs kind of realise that there probably is a path through this. Um, they might look at what the Germans have done since that first week and think, OK, well, it's it's working there, so there's no reason that it can't work here. But there might be one reason, and this isn't necessarily a subject for us to... To tackle, but the fact that we have so many cases still happening in this country means that it is effectively a different environment in which you're deciding not to isolate your your players. The other issue with bringing teams back after a layoff like this isn't actually the the positives for COVID nineteen. It's the number of injuries that your players get. I think they've had something like a threefold increase in the normal rate of injuries in in the Bundesliga. How much is a squad's going to be tested by this? 
I think there will be. I think that's partly why the, the the coaches have been adamant that they that they want a four week build up rather than. I think initially, the Premier League suggested two two weeks of full contact training. The, the, the managers said no, we want four, and I think they've settled on three. Uh, the longer they have to train, obviously, the better in terms of their their physical conditioning. The Bundesliga players are obviously at risk of soft tissue injuries. But the other thing that I do wonder might help England in the, in that sense, and it's worth considering because no one should be asked to put. Their, their health on the line that's one of the principles of this whole discussion you shouldn't be asked to put your health on the line uh, to play football to do to do your job uh, and that applies obviously very seriously to coronavirus but it also applies to an extent to injuries that it, it's a risk but the, the clubs have a duty of care to their players not to not to exacerbate that risk more than is necessary so I think what made the, the Bundesliga start particularly difficult was they had that midweek round of fits just they played the Saturday, they played Saturday, they played Wednesday, they played Saturday. So they've had to build up to four games in two weeks. And I can kind of see the logic for that, because they just want to get the season done. And, you know, the, the snowball is rolling now, so you, you might as well just throw the games in. But you are increasing the risk on, on the players. I think what the Premier League have done, the plan they have, is a little bit slower. That They, they, they are only earmarking two midweek fixture, fixture rounds, plus one for the FA Cup. Um and I suspect that might help a little bit as well as that sl- that extra week of training time that the managers have managed to sort of haggle out of the Premier League. But th- we shouldn't be under any illusions. Th- this is not a perfect si- situation. Obviously, the situation for the teams coming back is not going to be ideal. There may be more soft tissue injuries, and we have to you know have to hope that when they occur, they they're kind of minor minor tweaks that keep players out for a few weeks rather than anything more serious. Um, but I suppose the Premier League have looked at it and thought, well, in a less than ideal world, then that is one of those compromises we have to make. And it's up to each individual, I guess, to decide whether they think that's the right call or not. OK. Can we call you broadly, cautiously optimistic, Rory? Uh, uh, yeah, probably. I'll, 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 I'll believe it when I see a ball being kicked. I think, I think that they have, in, in the end, pulled it out of the fire a little bit because there was a point about a month ago, I suppose, where it looked like the... the the politics had got so much, had got so intense that the self-interest was so rampant that on on both sides that there may not have been a solution. And I thought I think that was that was quite damaging for the Premier League to be honest. They seem to have rescued that a little bit, but we shouldn't be under any illusions that it will definitely happen because so much can change. And as you say, the crucial thing is that the situation with coronavirus in this country is not as good as it is elsewhere, or not as unbad as it is elsewhere. It's probably a better way of saying it. Um, in fact, even better is it's worse here than it is there, um, and I think that that is the most important thing. Is that that obviously is, is a far bigger issue than what happens to football, but also it has an impact on football because it may well be that the overall environment makes it much harder for the Premier League to put this plan into action. Rory Smith of the New York Times. What's the situation with the Championship? How how well laid are their plans, Daniel? The Championship's been caught in a really weird position in that it's pretty obviously separated itself from League One and League Two, or albeit under the same governing body rules, because those seasons probably will not restart and the Championship very much wants to. So it's kind of aligned itself to the Premier League. And I think in doing that has kind of let the Premier League sort out all the politics and iron out some of the niggles and will then go, yeah, we'll do that then. I think that's their aim. I think their aim is to play out the season. They do obviously have a little bit of a leeway in that if if we do come if the season is curtailed after starting, then they can say, right, well we'll do points per game and just do the playoffs and that's it. So they do have a little bit of a get out and, and maybe take relegation off the table. But they do want to finish the season at pretty much the same pace as the Premier League, albeit with a significant man more matches to play. 
And a significant number of positive tests actually from the, uh, or positive mm. results from the last round of testing among the championship clubs. Ten uh, coming back across eight different clubs. Alrighty. Meanwhile, as uh, we've mentioned in the past, La Liga in Spain due to return very shortly, actually, in just over a week's time with the Seville derby. Serie A back about a week after that, and getting underway, first of all, in Italy with the Coppa Italia semi-finals. That's the plan anyway. But uh, speaking of big competitions, finally returning into Totally Cup final on the, on Thursday, lads. Mm. We've we've tested all our people. And we've had loads of negative results, right, Matt? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, not necessary, really. But yeah, correct, <laughs> accurate. Stringer Bell writes in says, uh, "When do we get pre-final interviews from Coxie and Story? Uh, have they always dreamed of appearing in the Intertotally final since they were kids, etc.?" Michael. Yeah, looking forward to it. I feel I genuinely felt a bit of pressure going into the game, so I, I kind of feel like the pressure's off now. If I lose really? in the final. At least I got to the final, um, but yeah, like a you know first round e- exit. You know you wouldn't want that, would you, Matt? Come on, that would be <laughs> really damaging to the brand. Really damaging. <laughs> what about you, Daniel? Almost word for word repeat of Michael's interview. I'm afraid. Yeah, pressure off. Go out there and enjoy yourself. If you lose now, you still got to the final. Well, that is coming up on Thursday, and I must say I'm really looking forward to it. Next up. On this Totally Football show, it's Retro Premiership time, 99-2000. The Bundesliga is back. And as Dortmund hope to close the gap on title rivals Bayern, Paddy Power paid a visit to star striker Erling Haaland's family home to see where the boy wonder came from. It's a lie. It's a lie. <laughs> Hello, come in. <laughs> we all wondered what they'd been feeding him. And this weekend, Paddy Power will be getting on board with an invention of our own, the Money Back Special. See online for our latest Bundesliga Money Back Specials. Paddy Power. Terms and conditions apply. 18plusbgovernorware.org. On Spotify, smart speaker and podcast platforms everywhere, this is the Totally Football Show from Muddy Knees Media. When the crowd say ball, This goes out to all the DJs. Thanks. Kids, that's how people got down in the last millennium. A decidedly mixed epoch that was drawing to a close as our latest Premier League chapter was getting underway. August 1999, while the world sweated over terrors like the Millennium Bug and Steps, 20 teams were ready to kick balls across the nation's top flight stadia. Chief amongst them, of course, Man United, European champions. And I'm not going to mess about, they win this one. At a canter, 18 points clear at the end of the season, having had only three defeats all year. But along the way, there was, as ever, much to enjoy. Daniel, turn of the millennium, it was to mark the end of an era for one big English club. Yeah, I think this is one of the key incidents in English football over the last well, two, three decades, or over the entire Premier League era, really. Joe Kinnear is found to have a heart condition which forces him to step aside as Wimbledon manager after an extraordinarily successful spell at a club consistently fighting above its weight. They had kind of slipped down the division a little bit in the previous two years, but had been fairly comfortable in terms of relegation. And his departure means they they absolutely gamble and roll the dice and go for Norwegian Egil Olsen, who is a, an unmitigated disaster. And they eventually, no spoiler alerts, get relegated at the end of this season. Um which in turn leads to them being incredibly vulnerable to what eventually happens to that club, which is the death of a club and its move to to Milton Keynes at the hands of people who should have been 
responsible for cherishing that club and instead kind of threw it into the fire. So I think it's a hugely significant moment. Um, it feel that 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 MK move to me felt like the first real clang of, uh, in inverted commas, modern football. In that you thought this can't happen to a a club that has just been in the Premier League a few years ago, and it did happen. All because they appointed a man in Wellington boots. Indeed. What mm. was so bad about Olsen? Uh, he was a calamity. He 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 kind of had this shtick that he was gonna. I think he he bought into the shtick of this crazy gang thing, and that was his thing. He was like, well, I'm a, I'm a kind of different character too, and it just absolutely didn't work because what had worked before was that Joe Kinnear was sort of a disciplinarian cross with being their, one of their mates, basically, and allowed them to do what they wanted, and they, they fed off that. And, yeah, he was a calamitous manager, and they fell away accordingly. Yeah, great great quote from uh, Wimbledon striker John Hartson this season on, on Egil Olsen. Uh, I think it's been well publicised that not everyone gets on with the manager, not everybody likes the way he works, some of the things he does, or his attitude. So, <laughs> full house. Um, but... I, Kind of almost as important as Joe Kinnear, or maybe maybe as important. Sam Haman departed this season as well. You know, he'd been kind of hanging on as chairman, but was a, a big part of that crazy gang culture and spirit. And um, you know, Wimbledon were, were bought out by Norwegian owners, who obviously had a big say in Egil Olsen being appointed. And once Olsen was sacked and replaced by by Terry Burton at his unveiling press conference, one of the owners said relegation is not an option for Wimbledon. But yeah, it was. Not so much an option as a certainty, Wimbledon having picked up just one point from their last 10 games of the season. It was a bad time for teams with W's in their names, promoted Watford and Wednesday, both also heading down at season's end. Things going better for the other two promoted sides, though. Bradford, a.k.a. the Bantam Menace, who fielded a motley crew of familiar old faces, Lee Sharp, Dean Saunders, Dean Windus, and even briefly, a 41-year-old Neville Southall. I managed to stay up thanks to an iconic last-day goal against Liverpool. A Also staying up, and how, Sunderland, who began their season getting pumped by Chelsea, but ending it with their best ever placing, seventh, just missing out on a UEFA Cup place. Yeah, the, the Sunderland one was, was a weird one, because you mentioned they got they got beaten pretty heavily on the, on the opening day. They also went 11 league games without a win between Boxing Day and March, which kind of speaks to what we've been alluding to so far and that this was not a vintage season of Premier League football that you could have that kind of run and it was basically if Phillips or maybe Niall Quinn didn't score that then generally Sunderland didn't score this is the season that Kevin Phillips got 30 goals which was quite extraordinary um, for a player who hadn't started as a striker and, and hadn't had much Premier League experience at the time but went on to be um, an England international basically off the back of this season. He and Niall Quinn scored almost 80% of Sunderland's goals uh, that season. As you mentioned, 30 for him, which won him the European Golden Shoe that season. John Sands asked, is Kevin Phillips the most unlikely European Golden Shoe winner of all time? Replies at the bridge pod, colon, a Chelsea FC podcast, Matt, your colleagues. Uh, well, you had Nikos Maklas in 97-98, who scored 34 goals for Vitesse. But even more obscure was David Taylor, who got 43 for Porth Maddock back in 93-94. Wow. Michael, do Sunderland lightning fires for you? Peter Reid? Uh, yeah, I mean, they're a good side. Yeah, I think Phillips was, was probably the most memorable thing from this campaign to get 30 goals 
um, in his in his debut Premier League campaign was remarkable. Um, I think people think of Phillips as one of those strikers who was kind of in the Premier League for a while and just banging them in season after season. But it's not really true. I mean, aside from this season, his his top uh, season in terms of goals was the following campaign when he got 14. So it's not unfair to really consider him a, a one-season wonder. Um, but yeah, I mean, Quinn and Phillips, you'd have to say, was one of the most memorable strike partnerships of um, of the Premier League era. I mean, if people say the phrase a little and large partnership, they're instinctively the guys I think of because they just define those roles. I think they probably work better alongside each other than they did alongside anyone else, if that makes sense. Um, and yeah, it was it was just quite fun, I think, to have Sunderland in the league. They they just brought something different in an otherwise relatively forgettable season, I'd say. Among the Maccabs' many achievements that season was ridding the northeast of Rude Hullet. As we mentioned last week, Hullet's manner and methods had divided Newcastle, him on one side, everybody else on the other. And after a dismal start to the season, which saw them pick up one point from their opening four matches, the end of August saw Sunderland visiting St James's Park for the derby, Hullet boldly dropping Alan Shearer. And when Sunderland then won, he was done, resigning to be replaced shortly afterwards by Sir Bobby Robson. Did Sir Bobby's first game in charge see much improvement? <laughs> It did indeed. They won. Uh, they won eight nil against Sheffield Wednesday, and uh, I think I'm right in saying Alan Shearer scored five of them. Uh, as we said, having been dropped by Hullet for his last game, so I think we can say that Shearer was happier under someone like Robson than someone like Hullet. The, the contrast in the the two managers' attitude to the job. I mean, I think you you would find it difficult to think of a, a starker one. You know, Hullet leaves uh, after after the Sunderland game, but before that they lose at Spurs. He says the players aren't trying, essentially. And then as he leaves, I've had so much invasion into my personal life and my family's personal life, I can't even go to the cinema. And then the shots of Bobby Robson coming out before that Sheffield Wednesday game, looking genuinely choked at the fact that he's finally getting to manage his, his hometown club. Um, that might have been worth a couple of goals in that Sheffield Wednesday game on its own. Adam pointing out that he'd actually been offered the job a couple of years before, but had to turn it down because he'd already given his word to Barcelona. I'm sure that was the only reason he went to Barcelona rather than Newcastle. Uh, Adam wonders what would have happened if he had accepted the job when Keegan left. What would have been a Newcastle? Well, that's maybe a topic for another day because there's so much else to talk about from that season. Things like George Weah arriving at Chelsea and Chelsea becoming, Matt, the first team in Premier League history to name an eleven with no Englishman in it. Yeah, and I think at this time it was thoroughly predictable that it would be Chelsea who did that. You know, they had a, a foreign manager, which was relatively rare, rare at this time. They'd had the first foreign manager in Hullet to, to win a trophy in English football and kind of wasn't really a surprise when they did it. And, and Gianluca Vialli, who was the manager, said, you know, football's an international language. And now I don't think any of us would even notice if a Premier League uh, team sheet came out and it was uh, there were no English players in it. But yeah, George Weyer, as you say, arrived... Uh, midway through the season in, in January, uh, did his medical, came off the bench the same night against Spurs uh, in place of, well, he was selected in the squad in place of Gianfranco Zola, who was in rotten form at this time. And Chelsea also had Chris Sutton, who got a massive one goal uh, this season, which is why they felt they needed to bring in Weyer. And apparently really popular with his Chelsea teammates, um, including Chris Sutton, who, as, as I mentioned, had a rotten time uh, in this season with Chelsea, but enjoyed Weyer's company so much that he named one of his pigs after him. 
Well, that's nice. But I'm pretty confident. I know I did dreadfully in the quiz, but I think I can say with some certainty that he's the only current, past or future president of Liberia to have played in the FA Cup final. Michael's nodding, so we'll, we'll, we'll take that one. <laughs> also that season, Thierry Henry began his reign at Arsenal. He didn't score in his first eight appearances, but he ended the season with 26 goals in all competition. 99-2000 saw Everton winning at Anfield. Why is that notable? Because it's the last time that it happened. And it also saw a young Paolo Di Canio scoring one of the all-time great Premier League goals. Sinclair's cross over Cunningham. Di Canio! I do not believe that! That is sensational! Even by his standards. Woof. Bristol Saint says, was Di Canio's volley against Wimbledon the best ever, given that he executed it on the run with the wrong foot as it were? It was an extraordinary thing, wasn't it, Michael? Yeah, it, it was brilliant. And and I think one of the things that makes it brilliant is there's a couple of really good camera angles for it. There's one just behind the goal in, in the side that he goes into. I mean, it's an incredible idea to take that shot on, really. I, I don't quite know how he manages to think to do that. And also to catch it, I mean, it's one of those shots where he's sliced it, but he's deliberately sliced it with the outside of his foot. To think to do that is incredible. The only thing that I wish was slightly different was... Behind the goal, for some reason, there's just loads of empty seats. And it's just the kind of goal that you want a crowd to go mental for. Um, yeah, that's the one thing I would change about that goal if I could. And there was a very similar goal, actually, not quite as good, scored by Gus Poyer on the opening day of the season. Here's Zola, teasing the club from the northeast again. In goes Poyet! Oh, simply glorious! ball played over the top by Zola and he does the scissor kick volley as well but it's not as aesthetically pleasing as Di Canio's and it's um, it's with his right foot as in his correct foot his preferred foot I should say so it didn't get as many headlines but you see so few of those kind of scissor kick style goals to get to in the same season was um, was weird but Poyer's not really remembered in the same breath as uh, Di Canio's. Di Canio was so outrageously and so frustratingly talented as a football player well while all of this was happening, meanwhile, up in Yorkshire, Leeds were having a momentous season. Top of the table in the Premiership, heading into the new millennium, held by a run of seven home wins in a row, all of which was rather unexpected given that they'd lost their manager, George Graham, the previous season. And the summer leading into this season, they'd sold Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank to Atletico Madrid. Yeah, Hasselbank had kind of made no secret that that he wanted to, to leave Leeds in his similar way to George Graham had done the season before, which was why David O'Leary got appointed. But O'Leary went so strongly with, with mainly youth players. I mean, there were, you know, the likes of David Batty still still hanging around. Oh, it's in! Michael Bridges with a hat-trick for Leeds. But they didn't miss uh, Hasselbank too much because of the form of Michael Bridges, who'd come in from Sunderland and ended up scoring 21 goals in all competitions in this season and, and was an England under-21 international, seemingly with the world at his feet. But I was looking at his stats earlier today and the number of games that he played over the next few years is is tiny because he had a really serious knee injury and actually after this season he went four years without scoring another goal and that goal that he eventually scored was for Carlisle in League One so it just shows how injury really destroyed what was looking like a, a really promising career but for Leeds this season they, they played well they came third they had some sort of rip-roaring fantastic performances but they couldn't beat 
the title challenges and that's really what did for them. They lost home and away to, to Arsenal, to Manchester United and Liverpool and that, that meant that they couldn't keep pace with, with United as nobody could by kind of March, April time. Yeah, and I think it's also important to say that off the field were a series of significant events for Leeds. Started with uh, Jonathan Woodgate and Lee Bowyer being implicated in what we should describe in tabloid terms as a nightclub fracas, and was actually a pretty horrific injury sustained by um, the victim. Eventually, they were cleared uh, of most charges, I think is the best way of saying it, although some charges did stick. Uh, and then, tragically, later on in the season, when they went to Galatasaray in the UEFA Cup, two Leeds supporters died after being stabbed in in Istanbul. So, yeah, it was a, a it was an extraordinary Premier League season. Um, I don't think we should necessarily, because we talk about the football, should allow that to overshadow Michael Bridges's campaign because it was absolutely remarkable. It really was. It was one of the astounding Premier League seasons, to my mind. Mm. 19 league goals, one of the great lost talents. Well then, Manchester United. Yep, United treble winners the year before. Champions again this time, the sixth Premier League title out of the eight there had been. And winning it by an 18-point margin. Ready, looked in doubt. Although they did do their best to make it interesting but with their transfers, eh, Matt? They brought in both Mark Bosnich and Massimo Taibi, neither of whom really worked. There are other big signings. Mikel Silvestre, he had a decent career at United, but not necessarily an upgrade on what they had. And Quinton Fortune. You think, you know, the best teams improve their squad when they're supposedly at their strongest. And that was quite often a kind of a Fergie mantra to do, to you know get rid of players maybe slightly before other people thought they should have been gotten rid of and, and replaced them with younger, fitter models. But but not this time round, and, and it didn't matter in the slightest. Well, Taibi had a, a great reputation uh, in Italy, although possibly as somebody who performed better at smaller clubs who might get a little bit lost when the pressure was on. That, that certainly seemed to be the case at Old Trafford. Is he now kind of the ultimate, in the same way that people talk about Emil Heskey, when they want to mention a striker who can't score goals, or Titus Bramble as somebody who's wildly erratic as a central defender. Massimo Taibi is kind of your gold standard for a disaster between the posts. Here's Letizia, and they let him have a go. No power on it whatsoever. But Taibi has made a horrendous error, and Letizia has equalised for Southampton. If you look at United's statistics from this campaign, they're quite interesting. They conceded 45 goals in 38 games, which is the most of any Premier League winner by quite a long way. So, yeah, it was a big issue who was going to play in goal for them. I don't think they ever really solved that issue until, I would say, van der Sar came in. I know um, Barthez was was decent, but also made a lot of errors. I must say, the Manchester United goalkeeper I remember most fondly from this season was a guy called Nick Colkin, who uh, people might not remember, but had the glorious distinction of coming on in the very last minute of a crucial 2-1 victory um, over Arsenal at Highbury. He came on when Manchester United had a free kick inside their own box, took the free kick by thumping it downfield, and then full-time went, the whistle went. And he celebrated like he'd been a massive part of the success. And to make it even better, he never played another minute in the Premier League. So his entire contribution was thumping the ball downfield, celebrating, and then that was that, which I think really must go down as one of the great Premier League careers. Michael, if they were conceding record numbers of goals for a, a title winner, but yet 
They also won the Premier League by what at the time was a record 18-point margin. Where was everybody else while all this was going on? What had happened to Arsenal? Yeah, I mean, it it's felt like everyone had an off-season. I mean, I, I don't think there was any great reason why Arsenal were were poor. They'd replaced Anelka with Henri, who I know took a while to get going, but maybe it was some of the other players who were not particularly on their game. I think, you know, their fine defensive record from the previous season was was going. I think the cracks started to appear in the defence. But yeah, I mean, it was... I, I, to be honest, I find this the least memorable Premier League campaign just because there wasn't really a title race. And even though Manchester United won the league by absolutely miles, I wouldn't really consider it one of the vintage Manchester United sides. I mean, at this point, they got 91 points, which was the most we'd seen in a 38-game league campaign. Um, and yet, I, to be honest, until I researched this, I really struggled to remember many of the victories and uh, you know many of the great goals. It, it kind of just felt like a season that happened rather than uh, you know one we all remember fondly. In terms of Arsenal, we spoke on the 97-98 look back when they won the double about how Wenger had successfully integrated new and old. And I just wonder if this was the season when that caught up with them a bit. You know, you've got Seaman, Winterburn, Dixon, all 35, Adams, Keown, 32, um, and, and kind of not adequately replaced. It was it was a, we'll bring in Silvino at left back, but but that's kind of it. Whereas maybe it needed a bit more of an upgrade in, in, in those kind of positions. And they also lost silly games. You know, they were beaten by Coventry, Bradford and Middlesbrough. And, and that's the kind of thing that Manchester United just didn't do on a regular basis. Well, they started with a nine-game unbeaten streak, which included a 5-1 drubbing of Newcastle, four goals from Andy Cole in that, a 4-0 thrashing of Sheffield Wednesday in the first game at Old Trafford. They finished the season off with 11 straight wins. Andy Cole and Dwight York continued their incredible partnership up front. But I, I guess if you had to stick this on one player, it was the year of Roy Keane. who was in contract dispute with the club for most fit and seemed to help him, as, as probably would, given the personalities involved. And he ended up being football writers and, and PFA Player of the Year. Was was this the defining season for, for Roy? Yeah, I think it probably was, but it, it's odd with Keane because he's such a, a kind of force of personality and, and opinion now. Actually, he was at his best when he wasn't necessarily running games, but just providing such a level of insurance in that central midfield that the other midfielders could kind of wander free. You know, there were times when they played Scholes and Giggs and Beckham, and Beckham and Giggs got 27 league assists between them that season, which suggested that they were basically allowed to push on down the wing as much as they could to service Cole and York, and very safe in the knowledge that Keane would mop up absolutely everything he needed to do. I mean, they, they won a lot of games, particularly late season. They won a lot of games before they'd even started in that they were on such a run that teams just thought, you know, if we lose this 2-0, it's not the end of the world. But yeah, Keane was was magnificent. He was a, he was a, effectively a, a one-man central midfield if, if United needed one. He was just, you know, that one-man band of tackling, recycling possession. His passing was kind of better than probably he was given credit for. And yeah, he's, he's just two players and Manchester United would have won most games with 11. But when you're effectively playing with 12 because Keane's playing two roles, you're on to a good thing. 12 goals from that year. I think the fact that he'd shaved his head this season might have been a factor too in them winning games before they even started. The thought of being in the tunnel next to Roy Keane with a shaven head, quite something. Of course, one of the reasons that they're not so memorable, Michael, this season is they weren't there for some of it because they went off to play 
in the FIFA World Club Championship in Rio de Janeiro, uh, supposedly at the request of the FA, who were doing it to uh, help England's bid to host the World Cup in 2006. We all know how that went. Of course, the trip to Brazil didn't work out particularly well for Man United. Do you have happy memories of that? Them on the beach at the Copacabana? Perhaps Victoria Beckham going on the big breakfast and revealing how David liked to sample her lingerie? Uh, not particularly fond memories of that, but the tournament itself, I, this might sound stupid, but it might be the most excited I've ever been about a football match. It was just, at this point, the only foreign football we ever saw on, on proper television was some bloke talking about Serie A. Um, I don't think anyone really watched that stuff. But the, the idea of watching a Brazilian club side, I was just so excited. The only thing I knew about Brazil was the national side. And to have like, you know, Vasco da Gama on BBC One, I think at like tea time in the afternoon, was just, I was so excited by watching Romario and Edmundo up front together. And, you know, Manchester United's preparations I don't think were great and maybe they weren't taking it as seriously as South American sides who tend to be really up for it when they're up against European sides because they want to prove themselves. But Romario and Edmundo were just unbelievable, like unbelievable. And that goal that Edmundo scored where he did the, the I'd say almost Burkamp-esque turn around the United defence and finish was just exactly what you wanted to see from a, a Brazilian club side. Edmundo, olha a finta do Edmundo, maravilhosa! I'm not sure Manchester United fans will have particularly fond memories of it, but uh, just to see that kind of football was brilliant. Uh, I just really enjoyed the uh, the competition, even if it had slightly bad knock-on effects in terms of United not participating in the FA Cup. Mm. The strange thing about it was that they came out of the FA Cup because it would have uh, clashed with it, but then they moved the FA Cup third round back to December that year anyway. So theoretically, they probably could have played in it, but I think it was more of a theory from uh, Manchester United of we don't want to play 70 games rather than we need to go and play in this tournament to try and help England's bid to win the World Cup. I'm not sure that was top of Alex Ferguson's list of priority. Anything else from 99-2000? I was just going to say something about Stan Collymore. <laughs> OK. At Leicester, who also won something, the Worthington Cup. Yeah, they did. And... and they signed Collymore. We we spoke last week about about John Gregory's handling of him when he was at Villa and how can anybody be depressed on on twenty grand a week kind of thing. And 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 this spell for Collymore at Leicester in this season, he he did play for them a couple of times the following season and then for Bradford. But this is kind of his playing career in microcosm, I think, because you get every side of Stan Collymore. You you get a hat trick against Sunderland. He got four goals in six games for Leicester in this season. Uh, you get and I'll use the word again a fracas. Uh, on a, a team bonding trip to Spain and a horrific leg break at Derby, which really ought to have ended his career and all but did. But it's this kind of tragicomic with flashes of brilliance in it that, that really did define Colin Moore's playing career. And, and, and you think that season that he had with Forrest in the Premier League in 94-95, when he looked one of the best strikers in the division and, and moved to Liverpool and you thought he could go on and have a long and glorious career there here we are in 2000 so what five six years after that and he's basically finished as a Premier League footballer and we, we spoke about Michael Bridges in a similar kind of way but another a kind of lost Premier League great I think Colin Moore somebody whose career got nowhere near the heights that that it should have and and this Leicester spell just kind of encapsulates that in, in a in a 
quite a sad way, actually. Hmm. Leicester, where dreams go to die. <laughs> well, there you go. That was the 99-2000 season. What do you think, Michael? Have you, have you come round to it a bit? Are you going to go and dig out some old VHSs to relive its glories? Well, I did that this morning, James, so uh, certainly not going to do it again. Um, right. No, I, I mean, I just... It, it, yeah, it kind of passed by without too much incident. But uh, like I say, for, for United to get 91 points probably goes a little bit under the radar. Um, the mm. most points at that point we'd seen in the Premier League. So, yeah, fair play to them for that. Well, next week we'll be doing 2000-2001. You'll never guess who wins that one. <laughs> uh, it's a season which features some fresh faces. Ipswich under George Burley. You've got Van der Man turning up at Old Trafford. All sorts of excitements. But anyway, that is in a week's time. Before that, to round off today's show, after this, we'll talk more Bundesliga. You're listening to the Totally Football Show with James Richardson. Sie sitzen wieder nach und immer noch drauf und mit viel Dose und das fünfte hinterher Alfonso Davis, der wieder einen machen will. Das ist ja unglaublich. Das zählt nur für ein Spiel. Das müssen die wissen da unten. Right, Bundesliga, fourth round of action since things got back underway. It's not quite over yet. Monday night sees Köln hosting RB Leipzig. Of the 35 games so far played, though, since the restart, only eight home wins. And four of those eight, half in fact, have been by either Bayern Munich or Hertha Berlin. Now, Hertha have been an extraordinary success under their new manager, Bruno Labbadia, their fourth of the season, unbeaten in the four games so far, and then now moved all the way from the relegation zone up to within four points of a Europa League place, which would be quite extraordinary. As for the other team getting home wins, that's Bayern Munich, of course, who hosted Fortuna Dusseldorf, who were in the relegation playoff position on Saturday afternoon and handed them a bit of a statement, in the words of the German commentator, a 5-0 thrashing. Lewandowski, who'd never previously scored against Dusseldorf, got two in this game, the first of which was a piece of beauty. Alaba, here drüben is Davis on the way, and he is good. And there is Kimmich in full sprint through, and again Kimmich, legs him back, Müller, Lewandowski! And he schreibt wieder Geschichte, der Spielzug war eine Sensation. Michael, for anyone who doesn't speak German, what was what, what's just happened? Yeah, a very nice passing move, and uh, I always like a goal where uh, the goalkeeper is taken out of the equation with a, a selfless pass. Uh, I think it was Müller squaring for Lewandowski. Yeah, I mean it was just it was really good slick football, and you know a few people speculating that maybe without fans in the ground, teams are, are or players, I, I should probably say individuals are kind of almost taking more risks and, and doing things with slightly more composure, which I can imagine. Um, so, yeah, it was uh, obviously a comprehensive win and, and some very good goals in there. Kimmich, it is, uh, who picks it up near the touchline and he backheels it to Muller, who's racing into the area. And Muller sees a defender racing towards him and cuts it back again. But it's this one-two flick, flick, uh, and it arrives at Lewandowski, who buries it. And uh, speaking of flick football, uh, Hansi Flick has become the club's first manager to win 22 of his opening 25 games in charge, which is even better than Pep Guardiola's start there. Uh, Bayern looking really, really good. Uh, I know it's quite difficult to say, particularly with none of the actual other leagues in action at the moment, but the way Bayern are playing, you have to think that uh, they're going to be pretty strong contenders for European glories if those ever get contested this season. 
Yeah, and they, they should be too. I think one of the things I've noticed in the, the first few weeks of the Bundesliga is particularly when sides play Dortmund and Bayern, and, and I'll be honest, they're the games I've watched most. There does seem a, a sense of once the first goal or maybe the first two goals have gone in, a kind of a very obvious deflation and a, right, well, we, let's play this game at half pace now because um, we're not going to push ourselves. We talked about soft tissue injuries before. So you can see that sense of team just going, do you know what? We're not going to get anything out of this game and the effort it's going to take to try is probably not worth it. But also without the fans being there to, in effect, keep them honest. Yeah, I think that's probably true as well. I think the the key thing for the for the Champions League as well is, I mean, we don't know when it's going to be played, so a lot of this will be about physical preparation and what shape teams are in. I mean, it's worth pointing out that the Bundesliga sides have actually only got five games remaining of this campaign, whereas what Premier League clubs have got nine or ten. So it could be a situation where Bayern just come into it um, a lot fresher than everyone else. I think that's just going to play a massive role in uh, in how those remaining ties go. Bayern currently 3-0 up in their first leg of their last 16 clash with Chelsea, but uh, three away goals at Stamford Bridge looking good to go through there. They're seven points clear in the Bundesliga, five points covering the next four teams, Dortmund, Gladbach, Bayer Leverkusen and Leipzig. Those four teams fighting for three Champions League places. Leipzig, though, could tighten that group up if they get the victory on Monday. Leverkusen will be hosting Bayern next weekend. Leverkusen are one of uh, the few teams who've actually beaten Bayern this season. Down at the bottom end, while Hertha move towards the European places, their neighbours, Union, are busy tumbling down towards the bottom three. Currently, it's Paderborn looking like they are definite for the drop. And then you've got Werder Bremen, who are two points behind Fortuna in the playoff spot. But Bremen have a game in hand. All very exciting. Schalke, managed by your friend and mine, David Wagner, uh, managed to take their winless run to 11 games this weekend, getting beaten at home by Werder Bremen. And uh, the pressure continuing to build around the ex-Huddersfield boss. Crikey. More of that kind of thing. Werder will be playing their game in hand on Thursday. And then there's another round of action, the highlight being Leverkusen against Bayern Munich next weekend, of course. Uh, before that, Totally Football Show will return on Thursday. We'll be doing some Champions League retro. And we'll also... Michael and Daniel, be doing you guys. Yes, it sounds like a, a change up in the format of the Intertotally quiz. We, Michael and I have obviously completed specialist subjects. We've run out of those. So we're doing general knowledge, World Cup and Champions League. Um, right. Which is, when you sit down and look at it, is a huge amount of stuff to look through. No, it absolutely is a huge amount. And uh, I think there could be something interesting in the general knowledge questions as well. But more on Thursday when that all gets underway. How will you be preparing yourselves? Is there any way that you can research topics that vast, Michael? Yeah, I mean, you can, you can of course, revise the subjects, but it's just, um, you know, you can't replicate the pressure of a quiz situation, James. So, uh, you know, I'm, uh, yeah, looking forward to the, uh, looking forward to the questions. I think the Especially the subject being out of the way is is good because there's been some dodgy choices, let's be honest. Not by Daniel, I should say, but I think there's been some real controversies in uh, in that respect. Wouldn't be a tournament if it hadn't had its controversies along the way, but all we're waiting for now <laughs> is a showpiece final and we surely will have that when we return on Thursday. Look forward to your company then, listener. For now, it's many, many thanks to Matt, to Michael and to Daniel and uh, have yourselves all a lovely week and we'll catch up with you again on Thursday. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, a Muddy Knees Media production. 
For sales and advertising, please email sales at muddynewsmedia.com. Keep up to date with everything across our Totally Football Network at The Totally Show on Twitter and make sure you check out our brand new website too, thetotallyfootballshow.com. Muddy News Media.